0: Morning everybody and welcome back to the Funky Brain Podcast. We're gonna hang out today with a good friend of mine now. He's joining us from the UK. He's a British author, philosopher, podcaster and a sober guy, an ex-DJ music producer, and he spent 10 years drinking alcoholically, which is about right. I mean, I think I did about 15 years before you hit a wall. You just really, it's just hard to keep going on. Um, but, you know, and then he made changes in 2010 following an emotional breakdown. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But Mr. Ren tell us about, you know, how you got here, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Well, I'm from Manchester in the UK. I grew up in a
1: household with an alcoholic father and a non-alcoholic mother. Um, And if I'm honest, I don't really remember that much of my childhood. Um, I think I've probably, in hindsight, blocked most of it out, really. And it's not so much that anything massively terrible happened. It's just that I just feel as though... I checked out at quite an early age you know I, I my earliest memories really are of sitting in front of the TV drawing because I was I was a, a really really keen at drawing and um I ended up I went on to do a fine art degree as well and I just remember sitting in front of the TV drawing cartoons and that was my kind of disassociation really with the world from an early age because what I know now in recovery is that if you live with an active alcoholic, that person um, is emotionally unavailable. And the other parent tends to overcompensate for that parent's absence. And it just wasn't, you know, although I would have said to you, when I first came into recovery, I would have said, I had the best child ever. You know, I, I, I'm an only child. I was spoiled rotten. I got everything that I wanted materially which I did, you know, they were, I would never wanted for anything. We lived in nice houses. We had two cars on the drive. My friends at school even used to comment that I had the perfect life, you know. But behind closed doors, there was um, essentially from within my family, as I see it now, a lack of emotional intelligence. Um, and that was from both my dad and from me as well, because my emotional growth was stunted as a result of his alcoholism and when i started drinking at the age of 12 which coincidentally was about a year after he stopped drinking um i then stunted my own emotional growth at that age and my first drink was not exactly as it says in the alcoholics anonymous big book it didn't you know it didn't take all my fears away and it wasn't as though like uh you know like uh, the fire was ignited within me but it was powerful enough for me to Feel almost scared by it, you know. I, I, kind of, I felt the power of it Im- immediately, and I understood that because my dad had just given up drinking, because obviously he, he was an alcoholic. I got, I got this kind of intuitive feeling that the same thing might happen to me. And also, I was a very keen football player, soccer in, in your country, a soccer player, and I wanted to be a professional. So I thought to myself, if I, if I drink, I'm going to ruin my career. I'll never become a footballer, and ironically, it did pretty much ruin my career as well. So I didn't have another drink again until I was about seventeen. And at the age of seventeen, I had—I uh, was at an awards ceremony, and I'd broken my leg at the end of the season, and I was on crutches. But I'd won loads of awards. I'd won like the Players' Player of the Year and the Manager's Player of the Year, and we'd won the cup and the league and stuff. So we were being presented with all these trophies and stuff, and I was going up collecting my trophies, and somebody put a beer down in front of me on the table and I drank that drink and that was me off to the races, you know, I didn't stop drinking then and for for another 10 years and that drink did exactly what it said on the tin, you know, it lit me up from the inside, it made me feel like Superman, you know, any kind of uh, anxieties and insecurities that I might have had about myself were just wiped completely clear. And um, I just thought this is amazing, you know, and 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 I, and I my, my drinking career began there, and within, literally within a few months, I was already experiencing blackouts. And and one of the stories that I often tell is that my mum walked into my bedroom one morning after I'd been on on a night out with the boys, and there was sick all over my bedroom, and I was you know just in a complete mess on the in in the bed. And my mum opened the door and she looked at me and she gave me this look of complete and utter disappointment. And she said to me, what's happened to you? You were always a leader and now you're just a sheep. And that was really, that really, really hurt. That hit me right, right in the heart. You know? And um, it was the same look that my, Partner of ten years, who is now my ex-wife, gave me on many, many occasions. One, one, one of which I remember. I went out on a Friday night, and I said, uh, "I'm just going out for a couple of drinks." And on Sunday morning, she stepped over me on the doorstep, and she gave me that look, you know. And that was that was how it went really for the next ten years. I mean, I can't say that I didn't have loads of fun because I, I had a lot of fun. And drugs is a big part of my story as well, you know. I I moved from Manchester to Leeds, and I went to university, and. Um, just before I left for university I got my first set of turntables so I wanted to be a DJ and my soccer career ended because I started going out drinking and getting drunk and then couldn't perform you know in the morning when I was supposed to be playing football I remember being sick on the sidelines and again my parents would be watching me and looking at me with that disappointed look so my football career ended and a a, a potential DJ career began I moved to university. I went and did a fine art degree, and in my first year of uni, I won a DJ competition, which uh, ensured a residency at a nightclub in a local town called Bradford. And from there, I got another residency in the city that I was in, in Leeds. So I was had these two residences at these two really cool underground clubs, and I just thought I'd arrived. You know, I just thought I was the I was the best thing since sliced bread, and uh, my ego was absolutely massive. You know, it was and. And that's uh, something that I'll go into in, in a bit more detail. But the one thing that happened that I think that defined my life at that time, I was, I was about 20, 21 years old and um, I was in a nightclub on a Wednesday night in a, in a club called space. It was a, it was like a hard house. Um, so it was really dark and heavy music. And it was like, you know, I just, I just loved it. It was like, I felt so free cause I was away from home and you know, it was, it was just like, I was just like free and, Somebody gave me an ecstasy pill and I took this ecstasy pill. The only way I can describe it was like a synthesized spiritual experience. It was unbelievable. You know, the love that I felt for everybody on that night was just unparalleled. And I was in love with everybody. I was in love with myself. You know, it was absolutely awesome. It was as though I'd, I'd kind of met God really. And I just thought to myself, I'm going to do this every single day of the week if I can <laughs> If I could do this, if I could do this every night, I will do. And for the next three or four years, I did it pretty much at least, I'd say once, if not twice, every single week for the for the next few years. And you know, it it was just up and up and up, you know. And, and unfortunately, what goes up must come down. Really, eventually, at the end of my degree, I ended up getting a two two, which was really disappointing. You know, I, I I was if I'd applied myself, I could have got a first, a first class degree. Um, so I was disappointed with that and. I didn't have anything to show really for my three years at university other than, um, a degree in drug taking and, and drinking. <laughs> and and by this point, I,
0: I have a couple of those degrees.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And by this point I'd, I'd established myself as a DJ. I was working in a record shop. I was running my own record label and you know, I was, I, I, did, I, I thought that I had it all made really. And, um, and I didn't, you know, it was all, I, it was very mixed up in fantasy. I, where I I thought I was and where I really was were two separate things and um, eventually I I had to kind of bite the bullet and and get a real job, you know, get a real job in sales and my parents were kind of on my back a little bit to kind of grow up really and all the people that I'd kind of been clubbing with and drinking with had all started to grow up and move on and, you know, and get proper jobs and have children and all that kind of stuff and I just didn't want the party to end you know I just wanted to carry on like DJing and and going out every night fortunately I met around that time I met the woman that I married you know many years later and the way that I've described her in the books that I've written is she was kind of like my my angel really that was sent to me I think to put the brakes on you know and she wasn't a drug taker she didn't drink very much and she was just a lovely person she was just a really really nice person and she was five years younger than me and she just had her head screwed on and she knew what she wanted in life. She knew what she wanted to be. And um, for her sins, she loved me the way that I was, you know, and she kind of used to come along for the ride, but at the same time helped me to realise that my, my drinking and my drug taking wasn't as cool as I thought it was really. I kind of started to settle down with her, you know, and um, but my drinking, because my drug taking stopped or at least, you know, decreased a lot, My drinking then escalated. The more I drank, the more I blacked out. And the blackouts were getting more and more dangerous. You know, I woke up when I was driving my car on a motorway um, back towards Manchester. I had no idea why I was in the car. And uh, that kind of thing was happening. Um, I was very aggressive when I got drunk, you know. And um, fortunately, I never got into any real trouble in that sense. But it could have happened. You know, I, I would just... Kind of verbally attack people in the street that walk past me for no reason whatsoever, and and bless her, my partner, she she um she knew who I was really underneath it all, and I think she just thought that I would probably grow out of it, and and I just wasn't doing, you know, and eventually it came to a head when the the DJing was long gone, but I was still getting blackout drunk most evenings, and I would go on my my decks, which were by this time CDJ and cdj turntables and i'd be having a party for one in my pants every night you know and i'd be like you know in this fantasy that i'm still deep there was nobody there but me and the bottle of wine you know and uh and she kind of could see that i was i was you know on the rocks really and she she had a word with my dad who by this time had been in recovery for probably must have been getting on for 20 years and um he gave me a copy of his big book and I, we were we were going on holiday to Crete and and uh, he gave me a copy of his big book and he said, have a read of this and to tell me what you think when you come back. So I said, okay, cool. So I took the book away with me and on holiday I was sat on the beach with a big book in one hand and a beer in the other hand. And I'm drinking the beer and I'm reading this book and I'm reading excerpts of it to my partner. And uh, she, <laughs> she was like, yeah, that sounds like you, that sounds like you. And when I got to the bit when it talks about the Jekyll and Hyde character, I read that to her. And she said, that sums you up to a T. She said, you're a lovely guy when you're not drinking, but when you drink, you're like a monster. And again, that was another one that hit me there, you know. But believe it or not, I gave that book back to my dad and I said, it was a great read that dad, thanks very much. And I thought my dad was just trying to tell me about his alcoholism. I thought he was trying to help me to understand who he was as a person. My Denial was so kind of thick at that stage that I didn't recognize my own alcoholism. But definitely a seed had been planted. And from that point onwards, anytime I got really, really drunk or was taking drugs, which wasn't very often at that time. I would start to question my drinking, you know, and that seed started to germinate and eventually flowered into the desire to stop drinking. And And the way that that happened was my, my partner suggested that we leave Leeds where, where we were currently living. And she, she said, you know, Leeds is the problem. You know, you've got all your friends are there. You still go out drinking with these guys. And little did she know that I'd met this guy at work in my sales job which I was driving every day and I was drinking with this guy every single day so I was at, at lunchtime I'd have a couple of drinks have a couple of pints and then I'd be out then at most evenings with this guy and we'd be going out and getting absolutely wrecked and then I'd be going to work the next day and I'd be calling in six some days and one night I uh, ended up in a strip joint and uh, the next day I, I I don't remember what happened that night but the next morning i woke up on the pavement and it was like six o'clock in the morning the sun was coming up i could hardly walk i managed to walk home which took me hours called in sick that day and then about a week or so later i got a credit card bill and there was 500 pounds taken in one transaction and at this point we were saving to go to australia because She'd she'd suggested we leave and and we'd book tickets to go to Australia. I just couldn't believe it. I was like, I couldn't tell her because, you know, it's like £500, gone like that. And I just did not have the honesty. You know, I didn't have the integrity. I I just couldn't open Pandora's box at that time to, to tell her what was going on. So I just ignored it completely, managed to pay it off myself somehow by sneaking the money, you know, here and there. And that, and that led me to my rock bottom, really, because when that happened, I really knew then that I needed to stop, but I didn't know how. And the night before we left for Australia, uh, we stayed in London for, for two evenings. One night uh, we stayed at um, my partner's sister's, and the next night we stayed in a hotel. And the night that we stayed at my partner's sister's, um, I went to the shop and I bought four bottles of wine for four of us, you know, for a, for a quiet night in. <laughs> And uh, and I got some funny looks when I came back with these bottles of wine, and uh, and I, and I, I must have drank two of these bottles myself. And the last thing I remember was I was I was sat on the sofa, and I had my headphones on, and I was listening to Snoop Doggy Dog the Dog Pound album on my own. <laughs>
0: that is the best uh, hip hop album ever made.
1: Absolutely awesome. <laughs> uh,
0: oh yeah, there's no better. There's a couple of close. There's a yeah. couple of good ones, but that's the best one.
1: That is the best. Yeah, I agree with it. So I was, I was sat listening to that, having a party for one again, you know, and um, I remember looking over at the table and they were playing cards on the table and having a, having a drink and she gave me that look again, that look of disappointment. And that's the last thing I remember of that night. I blacked out and from that point onwards, I don't remember what happened. I just woke up the next morning and I kind of rolled over. She wasn't in bed and I just pulled the, the, the pillow over my face and I just said to myself, I can't do this anymore. I just cannot do this anymore. And it was because not only had she given me that look, but it was because my her sister and her sister's boyfriend had both seen me get into that state. And that was the state that was reserved for me and me alone and occasionally my partner. So yeah, the game was over. And I just knew, I don't know, it just came out. I just knew that that was it. And anyway, I, I walked towards the bathroom to freshen up and I overheard my partner and her sister having a conversation in the bathroom and her sister said to her, you hate it when it gets like that, don't you? And, and my partner said, yeah, I'm going to leave him if he carries on. Because the last time we went to Thailand, he was an absolute nightmare. Now that is a story in itself because about five or six years previous, we'd been to Thailand. And we were going to Thailand on the way to Australia this time. But five or six years previous, we have been to Thailand. I basically disappeared all the time. Just went, like, started drinking and just went missing. And this one time, I went into the jungle to get some tattoos. Now, I've got about 35 tattoos all over my body, but I didn't have many at this time. And I went into the jungle, and I ended up staying there for about 10 hours. And I was getting tattooed by this guy, and I met these this tribe. And they just connected with me and I connected with them. And I just love these people, bearing in mind that my partner's on the beach back at home, worried, sick, doesn't have a, a clue where I am. Anyway, I ended up getting a lift back on a motorbike with one of these guys and they'd invited us to a barbecue that night. So I come back, you know, come for a barbecue, come for a barbecue. And she's like, where have you been? I'm I'm absolutely petrified and worried sick. Here. I'm pissed as a fart by this point as well, you know. So that was the kind of thing that she had to put up with. And so she basically on this on that morning, she said to her sister, "If he if he if he carries on like that again, I'm, I'm going to leave him." Well, I overheard that, and I never actually said anything to her. I just walked straight back into the back into the bedroom, and I got down on my knees and I started praying. Now I'm not a religious person. I never was a religious person before this, but for some reason, it just came over me that this was the only thing, the only thing that was going to save me was god you know and and i got down on my knees and i and I, i started praying and i just kept saying please help me i can't do this anymore just please help me and when i stood up something in my kind of heart region just it felt like it dislodged it was like just some sense of relief all of a sudden and many years later when i was in a recovery meeting i heard somebody say it was like the war was over in my mind And that is exactly, that sums it up. It was like the war just was over because the decision had been made, you know, deep down to my innermost self, that decision had been made. And you know what, Dennis? I had the best night's sleep I've ever had in my life that night. I Slept in a a hotel room, ready to go to uh, jump on the plane in the morning. To this day, it was the best night's sleep I've ever had. It was just peace. That's what it was. It was just pure and utter peace. And it was because I'd surrendered, you know, in hindsight. Now I know I'd surrendered. And the really strange thing is that I got on the the plane the next day and I said to my partner, that's it now, I'm never going to drink ever again. And she said, you say this all the time, you know, like what, what makes this any different? And I said, I don't know. I just know that I'm not going to drink. And she said, just don't drink in Thailand. That'll, that'll do for me. So anyway, we got to Thailand and the obsession for alcohol had completely left me. I had no desire. Alcohol was around me constantly. I had no desire to drink whatsoever. And i knew that something had happened like I, it was a miracle like i knew that a miracle had happened i just couldn't quite admit that that's what it was i spent a month in thailand didn't have a drink flew to australia we set off travelling around australia the months went by still no drinking you know and i'm i'm on that pink fluffy cloud by this point i'm i'm you know i'm flying i'm i feel the best i've ever felt in my life and i'm thinking to myself why did i ever drink in the first place you know like what a stupid thing to do, knowing as well that my dad's an alcoholic. Why did I do that to myself? And I just thought, I've beaten it, you know, that's it, it's done. Anyway, I met this guy, and uh, he was a born-again Christian. And everybody that I met, I kept asking them about spirituality because I kind of knew that this thing had happened. I, I couldn't explain it. You know, I was buying books. About, the first book that I bought was uh, in the airport was The World's Religion, so I'd read that. And uh, I real well for me, I just kind of came to the conclusion that all religions are just kind of like elaborate stories for adults to explain the mystery. Really, that was the kind of way I, 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 I the conclusion that I came to. And I thought, okay, so I'm not religious, you know, but sh- surely I can live kind of a spiritual life. So then I bought this uh, book called the the atheist book, of, the, the little atheist book of spirituality. I read that, so I was like, okay, cool. So I can be an atheist and be spiritual. That's cool. And then I met this born-again Christian and I told him this story, I told him everything that I've just told you. And he said to me, if you want to know if God exists, ask for a sign. And I said, OK. And I said, why are you a born-again Christian? And he told me this story, basically. He said that his best friend's daughter was swimming in the swimming pool. She drowned. He pulled her out of the swimming pool, resuscitated her. She didn't come back to life. He got down on his knees and he prayed and he asked God to bring her back. And he said, I'll give you you all my money because he was rich, this guy. I'll give all my money away. I'll I'll work for charity if you just bring her back to me. And he resuscitated her again and she came back to life. So he did all that and he told his friend Tony. And Tony basically was converted on the spot because he'd known this guy all his life. So he just said to me, if you want to know, just ask for a sign. So I said, okay. So that night I walked home. And I was looking up in the sky and Venus was shining really bright in the sky, actually. And I I looked at Venus and I've got a tattoo on my arm here, which is all about this. And I looked up at Venus and I said, out loud, right, God, if you're there, I need a sign. So I went home that night and I went to bed. and Nothing happened, you know, seemingly nothing happened. But that day before I had the conversation with Tony, I was on the Internet. At work, bearing in mind I'm in, I'm in Australia, so I'm around the other side of the world from where I'm actually from in the UK, and I'm and I'm I'm on Facebook and Google, and I'm I'm searching for uh, for a childhood friend because she came into my mind, Angela, she's called, and she popped into my mind, and I thought, wow, I've not seen Angela for about ten years, and it was actually ten years since I'd last seen her on our 18th birthday, and Angela and I were born in the same hospital, and our parents were really good friends when we were growing up, so she was like almost like a sister to me really, but. As I said, I hadn't seen her for such a long time. So I searched for her and I couldn't find her. And uh, couldn't find her on Facebook, couldn't find her on LinkedIn, couldn't find her on anything. And then I went about my day and then I had that conversation with Tony and then I asked for the sign. And then the next morning I went into work and I logged onto my computer and I logged onto Facebook. And there was a friend request waiting for me, from her. Now, as you can imagine, my head nearly exploded at that, that synchronicity, coincidence, whatever you want to call it. And in that moment, I, I converted to a believer in some sort of higher power there and then. When I answered the friend request and I went onto her page, it turned out that she was actually living in Australia around the corner from me. So so I sent her my number and she rang me. And we, we basically had a conversation and we couldn't actually meet that night because we were both about to leave um, and go traveling. So... We ended up meeting up about six months later in London, and then the gravity of the story came to light to her because she didn't understand what had preceded it. Yeah, that just blew my mind. And then what added to it as well was the same in the same shop, which was where my partner worked, where this guy Tony worked. Well, Tony was the owner. There was also a woman there, and she was a black woman. I say the reason why I say she's a black woman will become apparent in a moment. And she had said to me, look, you know, obviously you're on this kind of spiritual path. She said, I'm really into self-help. And she said, there's this book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small
0: stuff. And she said, have you, have you have read it. it? I have it next to my bed.
1: Oh, cool. <laughs> what a great little book, isn't it?
0: Oh, yeah, that's great.
1: And she said, I'll send it to you. When you get back to the UK, she said, I'll send it to you. So I was like, okay, cool. So anyway, we set off traveling <laughs> and uh, we arrived in Alice Springs. Oh, and also she told me that she had a pregnant sister. Rosemary, she was called. She told me that she had a pregnant sister who lived in Alice Springs. So we're arriving Alice Springs, and as we're driving towards the supermarket to get some supplies, I said to my partner, "We're going to see Rosemary's sister at this supermarket." And she said, "Don't be stupid. Why? Why would we see Rosemary's sisters? Like twenty-five thousand people in this town." And I said, "I don't know. It just came to me then. I just had a premonition that we're going to see her." We pulled up the car, the car in the car park, and as we walked into the supermarket, a pregnant black woman was walking towards me, and I said, "There she is." And she said, no. And I said, she looks just like her. Like, I'm going to go over and talk to her. She was like, don't talk to her. I said, I'm going to go and talk to her. So I walked over to this woman and I said, excuse me, I'm really sorry to bother you, but have you got a sister called Rosemary who lives in Melbourne? And she said, yeah. And I said, is your name such and such a thing? And she said, yeah. And, I said, and she was like, where's the cameras? You know, she thought she was on like candid camera or something. And I, told, and I explained the situation. I said, no. I said, we've just come from Melbourne. My partner has been working with your sister for the last six months. Da, 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 da. Anyway, she was really freaked out. This woman, so I kind of left her in peace. And then the third thing that happened, which is the end of this story, that which was, which you know, is my explanation of how I came to believe in a power greater than myself. Was we then carried on travelling, and when we arrived in the Northern Territory, we were we were camp we, we were camping. We, we had a, um, a car, and we were going to uh, set up a tent and go camping. So we pulled up at this campsite and we wanted to uh, stay there and they had no room for us. So they said, we've got some room the next day, but tonight you're going to have to go and stay over the road. So we went over the road and when we'd uh, made the tent up and everything, I went to the book. Uh, I said, I'm going to go and change my book at the second hand uh, you know, book store kind of thing. And I walked in there, handed her my book and she said, right, you can go and choose another book. And the first book that I picked up off the shelf was Don't Sweat the Small Stuff and It's All Small Stuff. What are the chances of these three things happening in such quick succession? You know, when when people talk about God, higher power coincidences, any of this stuff, and they say it's all a load of bullshit, I just can't subscribe to the fact that it is bullshit because that happened to me. And there are only three stories, you know, I've got a lot more than that. In fact, I wrote a book called Anonymous God um, about all these stories and about other people's stories as well. So at that point there, I was completely and utterly convinced that God existed, you know, in some way, shape or form, but I wasn't actually in recovery at this time. And my mental health from that point to the next three to six months really started to deteriorate because I didn't have a program. I was doing it all on my own. And I actually, I was when we uh, the, the first caravan site that we went to. We went back there the next day, and we got jobs working in this caravan park. And we were cleaning. We were doing, we were cleaners for about two or three months, whilst we saved some money to buy a car to to do the rest of our travelling. And I actually found a bag of skunk weed in the toilets in, in a caravan. And uh, I hated weed, like I, like the feeling that, that weed gave me. I hated, but I needed to get out of my head. You know, I, I rang my dad and I, and and I said, look, you know. I, said i feel like i feel like i want to kill everybody and i feel like i want to kill myself you know i feel terrible homicidal and suicidal is the way that i would put it and and he said to me there's somewhere where you can go for that son and i knew that he meant alcoholics anonymous and honestly dennis i just thought that my dad was weak i thought that he was weak to need recovery and i thought that he was religious as well because all I knew was that my dad used to go to the pubs every night of the week. And then all of a sudden he, he was going to these meetings every night of the week, you know, and all I saw was this plaque at the side of his bed, which had a praying hands, you know, and the serenity prayer on there. And I just thought, poor bastard, you know, he's turned to God. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that was, that was how I felt about it. So I just thought, you know, I can do this myself. Anyway, I smoked this weed. I took, I, I rolled a joint. I smoked this weed. I went off to the beach on my own to this day apart from the fact now that I'm telling this to potentially thousands of people, nobody apart from me knew that I went to the, the, the beach. And, and
0: so <laughs> yeah, that's over now.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's over, yeah. So if, if that ex-partner is listening, she knows. She now knows. <laughs> and um, it didn't work. I smoked the spliff and I literally collapsed on the beach and I felt horrendous. You know, I felt paranoid. I I, I pulled a whitey. You know, I was kind of twitching on the on the sand, and um, I just felt I felt awful. And I remember, I, I, well, I've actually still got the diary that I was keeping, and I wrote in my diary, "I will never drink or take drugs ever again." You know, so I knew then that it that it was over. But as I said, I didn't have a program, and the next few months were horrendous. You know, my mental. I was, I was I was running three or four miles a day, trying to exercise it away you know i was uh, I was doing everything that i could i was just i was reading i was journaling, I was doing everything that I could to try to make this feeling of what I now know was restless irritability and discontentment with life go i wanted it, i just wanted it to get rid of it you know I, I was living in this in the most beautiful it was a place called Exmouth in Australia it's one of the most beautiful places you could ever visit, and I felt miserable you know I, it was back to in Manchester where I'm from it rains all the time you know and I used to think I was depressed because I was from Manchester you know and, and then all of a sudden I'm over the other side of the world in the most beautiful sunny heaven and I'm depressed and I've got that grey cloud all over me again and anyway we we carried on our travels and we, we ended up back in London uh well we, we moved to London should I say because my partner got a job there and it was it was the worst. It was my my emotional rock bottom. You know that's the bit that I wrote on my my blurb on my website. I hit an, an emotional rock bottom, um, and it was about it was about eleven months into abstinence, really, from from uh, alcohol. Uh, obviously, I'd smoked that one spliff. And I did really, really want to kill myself, you know i i just i just I broke down in tears on my knees in the lounge in our flat in london, and I just said to my partner, "I just can't do this anymore, I just want to kill myself and you know, bless her, she'd suggested that I go to anger management classes because she thought that my anger was the problem, and um you know she' was like, "You know you've not had a drink for nearly a year, it can't be the alcohol you know and uh, I just said. It's something much deeper. I don't know what the problem is, but I know, I think that I'll find the answer in Alcoholics Anonymous. I rang my dad again and I told my dad that I was going to try a meeting and he just said, just go along. He said, just listen, just sit sit down and listen and just listen for the similarities. You know, don't listen for the differences, just listen for the similarities and see how you feel. And I went to my first meeting that night, and it was uh, in, in Islington in London um, on a Wednesday night. And the meeting's still there, and it's a very, very strong, powerful meeting. And I walked in there, and as I walked up to the up to the room, uh, to the to the, the room, it, there was loads of people outside, you know, and they all looked super cool. Everybody was dressed great, you know, and uh, everybody's laughing and smiling, and pretty women, good-looking guys, and I just thought, this can't be the place. <laughs> this can't be the right place. And I said, uh, "Is this the AA meeting?" And one guy said, "Yeah, yeah." He said, "Are you new?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Nice to meet you." Shook my hand, and he said, uh, "I'll I'll take you in. I'll get you a coffee." He took me and got me a coffee. Sat me down. Introduced me to a few people. Now, bearing in mind, my dad had been in recovery now for over 20 years, and even though <laughs> he'd been in recovery, I knew nothing about it at all. I'd never asked him about it. I still had that crazy thought that alcoholics were all going to be, you know, sat there with loose trousers, a piece of rope, holding them up, stinking of alcohol and basically crazy homeless people was my, my image that I had in my mind. And it was, couldn't have been further from the truth, you know, and and a lot of the people in the room were young like me as well. And I was like, this is all right. This seems okay. So I listened um, as my dad had suggested for the similarities And God bless that meet, that first meeting. I heard my story, you know, and the guy that I asked to be my first sponsor, um, he shared and he told my story, like the whole thing. And it was unbelievable. I got so much identification. And I just floated home that night. I just literally, I felt like I floated. I walked home. I felt like I floated back to my flat in London. I kind of had this romantic uh, memory of me, bursting the door open and proclaiming to my partner that I was an alcoholic. (laughs) And she just went, yeah, I've known that for a long time.
0: (laughs) Everybody knew but you. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm glad you finally joined the party. <laughs> Best decision I ever made in my life, Dennis, you know, and that was uh, 10 years ago um, that, that that happened. And well, it, it says that in the literature that you'll you'll have a life beyond your wildest dreams if you, you know, if you work the program and you follow the suggestions. And my wildest dreams back when I was in my early 20s was to be a famous DJ, to have the most beautiful girlfriend and to have loads of money and to continue drinking and taking loads of drugs like that was my wildest dreams and that is couldn't be further from what's happened you know I've ended up living in the suburbs of Birmingham with uh, a beautiful family you know I've got I'm actually engaged to my childhood sweetheart that I met when I was 12 years old um, on holiday and I've got uh, two beautiful stepchildren I've got a beautiful daughter who's six months old I've got a job that I really enjoy I'm the host of the Life in Recovery podcast which I love doing and I get to meet people like yourself which is amazing and um, life's really pretty goddamn good and I've got a little dog called Teddy that I absolutely adore as well you know and wonderful relationship with my parents Um uh, Strong relationship with my my friends and, and my fellows, and you know life has just taken it's taken on the strangest of turns over the last ten years. But all in hindsight, all I did was it was suggested to me for, right from the very beginning that if you put um, recovery first, that everything else will become first class. That's what was said to me, and I used to listen to all these little trite cliches that people used to say. And I used to think to myself, bullshit, like, you know, where did they get this crap from? You know, but as time went by, I could see that it was working for people and it was working for me as well. And all those trite little sayings, um, I, I I bought into them all and and I say them all myself still, you know, and, and they really do work, you know, like Keep It Simple, for example, is just a beautiful one for, for daily living, you know, one day at a time, all that kind of stuff. It just really works for me. So what I did was I got a sponsor I worked the steps and um you know I, I really kind of threw myself into it and and I did everything that was suggested but apart from the key suggestion which is help others you know there was I was doing everything as in going to meetings doing a bit of service chatting up all the girls <laughs> yeah. like just being just being free and and enjoying uh, sobriety, but i didn't quite grasp the importance of helping other people in order to maintain your sobriety right at the very beginning. So when I reached step twelve, by that point i didn 't really have that much of a prayer life i didn't meditate i didn't really take inventory, and I certainly wasn't sponsoring anybody at the time and that coincided with my marriage breaking down so the per- the person who'd been with me throughout my whole of my drinking uh, we got married uh, just as I came into recovery in 2010. Couples either grow together or they grow apart, really, and, and unfortunately, we grew apart, and that was primarily because I started to go off on a new journey, and I, and maybe I didn't really take her with me. I don't know. I think I, I think I tried. I'm not sure whether I tried hard enough. I've you know I've got a lot of guilt around it that I've worked through, um, and a lot of regrets again that I've worked through, but. You know, you can't wish for anything to be different than it was because obviously it it is what it is. But I certainly didn't treat her very well uh, towards the end, uh, especially towards the end of the relationship. And it could have ended in a you know in a nicer way, really. But I did my best at the time. You know, I was a couple of years in recovery at the time and still a little bit mad, really. And I just did my best with it. And she, you know, the the marriage ended and um, and she's actually gone on to do really really well with her career and so when you look back you think it was all meant to be as it was and you know she she really did help me she like i mean ultimately i got sober because of her initially you know and uh from that point onwards when she when we when we uh, split up and got divorced i suppose because that period of my life was so difficult and i nearly picked up a drink quite a few times during the divorce That was when I realized the importance of helping others. And my my sponsor turned around to me and said, you're not really working the program, you know. And I was very offended by that. (laughs) And uh, he just said to me, look, you know, these are the things that you need to do on a daily basis, steps 10, 11, and 12. And if you're not doing them, then you probably will pick up a drink. I took his advice and I started to do those things, you know, and I started to pray um, to a higher power of my own understanding. I started to meditate. I learned to meditate and I uh, started sponsoring people, and as a result of doing those three things and continuing to do those three things today, my life has uh, you know, just gone from strength to strength really, and I, I moved from a sales career into a helping career. Um, I uh, started working in prisons as a drug and alcohol practitioner um, and a trainee counsellor. Did that for two or three years, and then I moved from the prisons um, to the community, and I manage um, a team in the community now, and started the podcast as well a couple of years ago. And this all coincided with me meeting my uh, childhood sweetheart uh, many years later through Facebook. And we, we got together, and I moved up to the Midlands from London. And this is where I am today, you know. So it astonishes me really what has actually happened, you know, from where I thought I was, from the direction that my life was going to, to where my life currently is and the direction that I'm going in now. It's just absolute madness really and one of the, the greatest things about it is being able to have these conversations because I listened to your story last week and I just thought wow yeah you've just been on this crazy journey as well you know and it's it's a privilege really like I don't know how you feel about it like I, I just feel well actually how do, how do you feel about, about having these conversations?
0: Oh, I love it. It's everything to me. First of all, I love your genuine, authentic personality and your willingness to just open up. And I'm that way too. And I think a lot of people aren't, and I think they hold that stuff in. And and some stuff doesn't need to be said in life, of course. But I mean, I, I think if you're holding anything in that needs to come out, you're not doing yourself justice, especially like in our case with our past, like it can help somebody like our story just revealing somebody who's sitting there right now thinking about suicide or has been drinking for five days or whatever they're doing and just feels that hopeless, suicidal, homicidal feeling. And they're, they can listen to this and be like, you guys were like that too? So there's hope. And you know, and I love what you were saying about how, and I, I used to hear it a little differently, but the same thing. It's like if I, w- I could have written down what I thought my life would be like in sobriety all these years later, I would have sold myself way short. Like if we would write down what the ideal life was like, all the money, the, whatever it is that we, we thought we needed or wanted back then, and what our life is like now, we would have sold ourselves way short. And I, I often say stuff like, I was under the impression life had to be fun all the time. And you know what I come to realize is like, I still want life to be fun all the time. But my idea of what's fun has changed. You know, I used to think it was fun snorting cocaine, playing pool in a bar listening to old classic rock and just like being crazy. And now it's fun, I think, to go to like the symphony or to go for a walk with somebody or, you know, watch the sunrise. This morning I took a picture of the sunrise on a hike at six o'clock in the morning. Like that's fun. Yeah, I mean, as you grow up, you get mature. Your, Your idea, hopefully, you grow up and get mature, which for us came a little later. But, you know, your idea of what's fun changes. And then another thing uh, that's a good segue into, you know, what you were talking about, your anxieties and your insecurities had been taken away with the alcohol. But, you know, it's not we get sober and then it's rainbows and unicorns and everything's perfect and life is like, you know, perfect. That's not how it goes. I can still get into the anxieties and insecurities and sobriety after many years of not drinking. And then I can I still have to take care of myself. Beyond that, my other cross addictions that can pop up, I can eat a lot of chocolate, you know, or I could do a bunch of other things to like numb out and not want to feel what's going on in my life right now. So, you know, life gets hard sometimes, but, you know, when I'm sober and clean, I have a chance.
1: And that's where I'm at today. I mean, what you just said there about the cross addiction. So the number one thing that I've got in recovery that, you know, comes above everything is peace of mind. And... I never knew that that was the thing that I was always chasing. You know, like when we talk about numbing ourselves out, you know, I was always try- like with alcohol. I was trying to completely and utterly obliterate myself so that I didn't feel anything anymore. That was what I was trying to do. And I didn't know that that was what I was trying to do. And when I took drugs, especially like ecstasy and, uh, and you know, cocaine, but but mainly ecstasy. I was trying to experience transcendence, you know, like true, absolute, pure love was what I was trying to experience there. I've had those experiences in sobriety. I mean, I wake up every morning with no fear and no anxiety. So I don't have anxiety and I don't have depression. Those are the two things that I had every single day of my life. And I don't have those two things. So that in itself is a gift. I have peace of mind. I'd say probably about 80% of the time, really, in terms of not worried about stuff, you know, like I don't, I don't tend to stress about things because I have this faith that everything will be okay. You know, like whatever happens, like as an example, I was supposed to be in Gran Canaria now. I think I mentioned that before the the podcast. Um, So that got canceled. That's the fourth holiday that's been canceled this year due to COVID plus my wedding got canceled. So, you know, I've probably had an excuse to be, you know, a bit, you know, pitiful um, to to a certain degree. And some people, that would absolutely ruin their lives, the fact that all these things have been, you know, cancelled, especially somebody's wedding, they'd be like, oh, my God, you know. And actually, I mean, yeah, I have experienced disappointment, especially when the recent holiday got cancelled because it was the fourth one. Um, But it doesn't ruin my life. And when I say I have peace of mind, I mean that I can experience disappointment, I can experience anger, I can experience the plethora of um, emotions that any human being would feel, but then go back to a state of peace. And that's the difference. That's what I have now. And I have to say that the reason why I have that, I think primarily not only from working all the 12 steps, but meditation and prayer is is the key to that for me. Uh, And especially meditation. I learned early on, I went through different, you know, meditation techniques um, and settled eventually on what's known as Vipassana. And and I went on a 10-day silent meditation retreat back in 2000 and I think it was 18 or 19. And that was an amazing experience, you know, being with myself in silence for 10 days and having a a couple of transcendent experiences. And just what it helped me to understand was that it doesn't matter what's going on inside, you know, like the, the emotions come and go, the thoughts come and go. It's about being able to sit with them or just let them pass. And the, the irony of that is even though I, I do that meditation every day, twice a day for 15, 20 minutes, and I still work a, a 12-step program, I still drift back into times of addiction. You know, like as we've been talking about off air, um, food is the thing at the moment, and it has been on and off for the last couple of years. And we've been talking about how it's just distraction from feeling. and I always talk about on the podcasts and in my writing how there's just this feeling at the base of all human beings, which is just that discontentment, you know, it's just like not being comfortable with being bored, not being comfortable with just having nothing to do. And it's that feeling, whatever that, however we want to kind of label that, that I feel that I'm diverting from, you know, when I'm picking up the food and it's just something that I've, I've... I've kind of accepted it now, but I'm also willing to do a bit more work on it. And I think this is the thing for me. Recovery is about change. You know, my, one of my favorite sayings is change is the only true constant because nothing ever stops changing. You know, until you die from birth to death, you're constantly in entropy. You know, you're constantly changing. So I don't know why I used to think when I was younger that I would eventually reach some sort of place and I'd just be fine there. You know, and, then I, and that's, that's how I would remain because I've got a completely different view now. I'm constantly about about changing and about evolving, about essentially especially getting well. I'll use this term very loosely. I did say this on, on our podcast, but the word enlightenment for me, I'm not sure whether there is this achievable, transcendent place that you reach where you become enlightened and then that's it. You know, I, I'm not sure that, that, is, that that's what happens. I, I've kind of come to believe that, you have those experiences and then you try to signpost people towards those experiences. And as you keep trucking along and, and trying to have more of those experiences, you just generally get a little bit better, you know, as time goes by, you know, and you'll never be perfect. You just try and get progressively more kind of, and that's, that's kind of where I'm at really in my recovery. And every time I speak to somebody like yourself or like Arlene or anybody that's much further ahead on the path than me, they tend to confirm that. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. You know, I, I like the word awakened more than enlightened. I think enlightened has this like Buddha feel like I'm some sort of be God or something like that. And that's not, I think awakened is better because it's like, all right, I woke up now. Now let's keep, how much more can I wake up? You know, and each day, like you said, every, the, the only constant in life is change. This is 2,500 years. This is Buddha stuff, thousands of years old. I think a lot of our misery, a lot of our suffering comes when we don't accept any, that change. We want to hang on to what is, whether it's making us happy or not. We just don't want to change, you know, so we want to hang on to that. And if we can let go of that attachment or that, that hold we have on whatever we think the way things are supposed to be, then we're just happier. And then what, you know what? It's, it's not that, what what do we say? It's simple, but not always easy. We talked about it. Well, how do you do this stuff? Well, I meditate every day. I help people. I do this podcast. I write books. I talk to people on a regular basis. I go to meetings. You know, I do these, that's what they're like. Well, so, you know, you tell people all these things that are suffering or can't stop drinking or whatever. And you tell them all these things and they say, well, how does it work? Well, I just told you, how go help somebody. When you wake up in the morning, don't look at politics and Facebook, meditate. Read something productive, write down some things. How are you, how are you, how's your day gonna go? Like plan your day and then go do that day. If you were to write down and plan your day, would you write, I'm going to spend between 10 and 11 suffering and being angry, right? So if you wake up in the morning, why don't you plan your day? Well, from 10 to 11, I'm going to have this meeting. From 8 to 9, I'm going to have breakfast, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, and then go have that day. So if I'm feeling off, uneasy, you know, or just, or just unsettled is the word I like to use. If I'm feeling unsettled, um, I don't want to feel that way. So, rather than sit for just two to three minutes, if you could sit for two to three minutes, almost all cravings go away. Almost all of them, you know, but we won't do that. If you could just sit, there's actually like scientific studies done that in less than three minutes, your cravings go away. Cigarettes, drinking, drugs, chocolate, whatever it is. I can't wait three minutes. (laughs) like... I'm busy, so I need right now. I'm going to go get the chocolate bar. I'm going to put some porn on. I'm going to go buy something. I'm going to go drive somewhere with some loud music, and I'm going to check Facebook and see what the president is doing. Because I need to know I just don't want to feel. Yeah. You know? It's crazy stuff. So, but again, if I'm sober, I have a chance. Um, as long as you're making an effort, you're going to see changes, right? To go back to these old uh, trite cliches that we hear all the time, nothing changes if nothing changes. Yeah, if I, keep, if I keep doing the same thing that I'm doing every day, I'm going to keep getting the same results. I'm not going to get where I want to get, but um, awesome talk, awesome conversation, but awesome. So if people want to get in touch with you, buy your books or anything, how would they do that?
1: Yeah, www.lifeinrecovery.co.uk, or you can email me, rencoy at lifeinrecovery.co.uk.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and tune in to the podcast, which is? The podcast is Life In Recovery podcast. And my episode is on there too. Yes, your episode is on there, number 55. Awesome. Well, thanks, Ren. I appreciate it, man. Another awesome talk. And we'll, like I said, we'll do it again. We'll have to because we can just go on and on forever. And, uh, and everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Funky Brain Podcast. We'll see you again soon. Have a great day. So you can't think your way into a new way of acting, you have to act your way into a new way of thinking and being. Hi, I'm Dennis Berry, best selling author, speaker, and life coach for addiction recovery. So many people are stuck in their addiction, whether it's like drugs or alcohol or food or shopping or sex or money, and they think they can just stop or try to figure it out on their own, but they don't change anything in their lives. Nothing changes if nothing changes. In order for change to happen, you have to change something. My clients will be like, oh, I'll stop tomorrow, or if this happens, then I stop, or someday I'll just give it up. And then they just sit around and think, 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 and hope for different or better results, but it doesn't happen. You have to take action. Action most people aren't willing to take. People don't become willing until they're in enough pain, me included, and unfortunately, they wait and they wait and time passes by. Even if you are willing, you don't even know where to begin. And that's where I come in. In my best-selling book, Funky Wisdom, A Practical Guide to Life, I talk about the how approach. How do I get sober? How do I stop doing drugs? How do I become healthier? How do I have more successful relationships? How do I become more financially successful? And the answer is how. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. I have to honestly admit that there's a problem. I have to honestly admit that things aren't going well and there needs to be changes. And then once I do that, the door opens and I become open to seeing new ways of living. And then I become willing to make those changes. You can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. That's why I'm here to help you know i've been working with clients for over 15 years and helping them get clean and sober and change their lives and achieve inner peace and success if you or somebody you love is struggling and doesn't know where to begin and how to make those changes to get to where they need to be give me a call not tomorrow or in a week from now when you were hung over and your life is falling apart call now start making that change today and you'll be glad that you did i'm sending you love and good vibes have a great day today